0: We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to be talking to you this morning about persistently praying through the pain. Persistently praying through the pain. We have been studying through Ezra and Nehemiah, and you should remember if you've been here that we have found out that The stories of the Old Testament, especially stories like these, were given to us so that we can see examples from it, so that we can be trained in our own righteousness, so that we can be equipped in in the the work of God. And so we, we can gain a lot of knowledge and understanding from the Old Testament. But one of the things God does in it is through all the stories, He shows you a group of people that He calls out of bondage, And then when He calls them out of bondage, He leads them on a journey, sometimes through the wilderness, sometimes through the desert, but He leads them on a journey back to the promised land, out of their sin, out of their darkness. And during that time, He's teaching them His ways and He is leading them to follow Him, giving them His law and um, correcting them where they need to be corrected. And then... When he finally gets them into the place, they build a place for him to dwell with them at, where he can actually um, commune with his people. And so we see in Ezra that he calls them out of exile in Babylon, and then he brings them through the desert on about a four-month journey back to the Promised Land. (coughs) Excuse me. And then whenever he gets back to the promised land, the first thing they do is build an altar and they build a temple so that they can dwell with God and they can be um, forgiven of their sins through their faith and the blood that is being shed. And then he teaches them their ways. He sends Ezra along and he teaches them the law. But then we get to a place today to where there's a man named Nehemiah. Somewhere around 160 years has passed since he first led them out of Jerusalem and led them into Babylonian captivity. Now think about that for a minute. Jerusalem has been destroyed. This is supposed to be the promised land. This is God's city, right? These are God's people. And so Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple has been burned with fire. The walls are broken down. And ultimately, we are 160 years into this. But... God has at least brought a remnant back to the place. They have at least established a temple and it's at least in the process of them actually getting back to that place to where they are dwelling with God in His kingdom that He rules over. But the problem is, Nehemiah gets some news to him. And Nehemiah, I want you to understand this, is in a very privileged position. What I mean by that is, Nehemiah has been raised in Babylon or in Persia, if you will. And he has become the king's cupbearer. Now for those of you that may not understand this, this is a very trusted position. The cupbearer was one that his job was to make sure that the king's food was not poisoned. That the king's drink was not poisoned. And so Nehemiah had to be a very, very trusted individual by this king. That means that this king probably treated Nehemiah pretty good, wouldn't you say? If you're depending on this man to save your life, are you going to treat him like a common servant? No, because all he's got to do is just not taste test something and just pass it right along to you, and guess what happens to you? You're done. And so Nehemiah is a very trusted individual. But Nehemiah's heart is not with his good status in Persia, not with the home that he has lived in his whole life here, not with the people that he's here... His heart is understanding that he's a stranger in this place. He's an exile in this place. He belongs with the people of God dwelling with God, right? And so ultimately, Nehemiah gets news from his brother. His brother comes in with some some of the exiles from Jerusalem, and Nehemiah asks them, he says, Hey, how about those exiles that escaped and made it back to Jerusalem? How are they doing? And the brother steps up and he says, you know, they're not doing good. They're in great shame and reproach because the walls are still broken down. See, what you need to understand is that the walls and the gates of a city represented God's blessing and it represented God's protection on that city. And so whenever the enemies of God looked at the city of God and looked at the people trying to follow their God, they taunted them and they laughed and they said, where is your God? You serve this great God and look at your city. Look all around you. The place is in ruins. You've been back for almost 100 years and you still can't get back to a place to where you're supposed to be. What kind of God could you possibly serve? Just to prove that, let me show you just a few Scriptures to back that up. Look with me at Psalm chapter 44, verse 13 and 14. This is what the psalmist wrote here. Psalmist said to God, You have made us a taunt to our neighbors, the derision and the scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. And that's exactly what God told them that He was going to do. If they they served of the gods, if they did not stay true to Him, He told them, I'm going to do this. I'm going to destroy this place. I'm going to send you into captivity. And I'm going to make you a taunt and a byword to all your people. Look at some other scriptures. Psalm 79 verse 4. He says, we have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. Then in Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 9, he says, I will make them. This is what God told them before they ever were destroyed and led into Babylon. He said, I am going to make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. I'm going to make them to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. In other words, God made His people have a reputation of being worthless, honestly. Why? Because they would not stay true to Him. But instead, they wanted to worship and serve other gods. They wanted to develop relationships with the world. They wanted to be one with the world. And God finally has enough of it and He does this right here. Nehemiah has been experiencing this in Persia as a child of God, as a worshipper of God, and yet all of his Persian people and all of the enemies of God keep looking at him going, what about your God? If your God's so big, then why are you going through this? If your God's so big, then why ain't He answering you when you pray? If your God is so great and you worship Him as the greatest of all things, you put all of your hope in Him and yet look at you. That's pretty tough, ain't it, to be going through your darkest time and that's the way people respond to you. And Nehemiah was going through some very difficult pain. This caused so much pain for Nehemiah, and he can't stand the fact that God's people are a mockery to their enemies. He can't handle that his home place lies in ruins. He knows it should not be this way. And you'll see that in chapter 2 when he describes to the king why his heart is so sad. I'm not going there this week, but you'll get to see it next week. And so there is only one thing that Nehemiah knows that he can do through this pain that he feels, through this heartache that he's going through. And I want you to understand something. This world is full of pain. You understand that, right? This world is full of inevitable suffering. In one way or another, Jesus told us, in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. That's a promise that He gave you. This world is cursed, and because it is cursed, you are going to experience the curse of this world. Not only that, but as a child of God, you have an adversary that is seeking to destroy your faith and actually specifically asks for you the closer you get to God. The closer you get to God, Satan comes before him and says, you know, the only reason they follow you is because you've done this for them and you've done that for them. But take this away from them. And I bet they'll curse you to your face. And to test our faith, God sometimes allows it. And so suffering in this world is inevitable because we have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. He tells us that the world is cursed for our sake. Ultimately, He says, it's going to bear thorns and thistles. You're going to have sweat and tears and you're going to experience tornadoes and hurricanes and all types of destruction from things that used to work for you, not against you. There was a time when work in the garden was not labor. There was a time when to dig a hole was an easy thing. Not anymore. And so one of the things that we see in this is that we experience suffering in this world in so many ways. It's inevitable. I don't care if you're in this world, you are going to have trouble. And so the question that we come to today in this text and what I believe a lesson we can learn from this in Nehemiah is that There is a way for people like you and I, children of God that hope in God but are experiencing pain and suffering in this world, there is a way for us to respond to this pain. And we're going to see how does Nehemiah respond to the pain that he's experiencing in his life. Number one, the first way he responds to it comes from verse 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. And look what it says right here. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And so the first thing that you see that Nehemiah teaches us in responding to whatever pain it is that you're experiencing in this life right now as a Christian, he says here the first right response is weeping and mourning. There is a time for you to cry. See, a lot of people say, well, you just got to be full of faith. The Bible doesn't tell us not to grieve. The Bible tells us don't grieve like those who have no hope. Do you understand what I'm saying? And so you still experience and feel the pain of this world. And it is appropriate to mourn and to weep For days, he says here, it is appropriate to express that in ways. The way that they expressed it in biblical days was through fasting. They went out and they expressed the sorrow of their heart, the grief in their heart, and it was a way to just get it out. Any of you in here that have ever experienced grieving in your life? You understand sometimes you just got to get it out. Sometimes you just got to yell. Sometimes you just got to scream. Sometimes you got to have something that you can do just to get what is in your heart out. And here Nehemiah starts that process and he weeps and he mourns because of the pain in this world. And I want to tell you something. Jesus Himself wept because of the pain in this world. The Bible tells us that when Jesus looked at Jerusalem and the sin that was in Jerusalem, the rejection of God in past and the rejection of the Jews in the future, the Bible says that Jesus looked over Jerusalem and He cried. He cried tears because of His love for the people that were rejecting Him. And then the Bible tells us that when he experienced the sadness and the pain of losing a dear friend in this life, the Bible says when he saw their sorrow, that he wept. And so there again, we have Jesus in multiple occasions to where Jesus understood that it is very appropriate for you sometimes to just get down plumb in your dirt, in the dust, and, and in this day and time, they would rip their clothes, and in this day and time, they might pull out their hair and their beard. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm just telling you that is a response that they did. They had to have some way to be able to express the hurt and the sorrow that they were feeling on their heart. And this is what Nehemiah does right here. But here's the thing about a Christian. Here's the thing about a God-fearing man or woman. They don't just stay in that place of just weeping and mourning. No, look what he does next in verse 4 again of chapter 1. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned, and I continued fasting and what? praying. You know, as bad as I hate that we are this kind of people, a lot of times we don't even really talk to God until we need Him for something. A lot of times we will lay our head down at night and never think twice about what God has done for us that day, about the mercy and the grace that He has shown us. A lot of times we get up in the mornings and we don't even let God cross our mind. We get up and we think to ourselves that it's just normal for me to have strength and breath and ability to be able to get up and do whatever I need to do. And we don't even stop for a minute to say, God, thank you that you even woke me up this morning. Thank you that I have the strength to get up and go to work. Because can I tell you that there are some people that can't do it. And it's only by the grace of God that you can when others can't. Do you really think you deserved it and they didn't? Absolutely not. You received it because He gave you His grace. That and that alone. And for that, we are to be able to come to Him and recognize Him morning and night and understand that God, we need you just to get up in the morning. I remember I saw a meme sometime and said, um, I need Jesus just to go to Walmart. Uh, I believe it was. I don't remember the rest of it. But you, you see the truth in that, right? I need Jesus not just for the emergencies in my life. I need Jesus just to go to Walmart. And so we see here that Nehemiah has been brought to a place to where he finally recognizes, God, you are the only one that can do anything to change these circumstances whatsoever. And ain't it sad that God has to bring us to a place in our lives that we have no choice but to acknowledge that? And then that is usually the time whenever we start crying out and praying. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's exactly what you are to do. But I am saying that it's sad that it takes that, that God has to do that to get us to a place where we understand how much we need Him. And so Nehemiah gets down on his knees in his weeping and his mourning and he doesn't just sit hopelessly, he responds by fasting and praying. Now the thing about fasting you need to understand is yes, it was a way to express the grief, but it was also a way to confess their sins and to remove all hindrances that would keep my prayers from being heard by God. And I've shared those Scriptures with you many times that the Bible teaches us that our prayers can be hindered by many things. You know that, right? Fasting is just one way that we put ourselves in what I said last week, a humble and contrite heart. It is a way to express the remorse in our heart for our sin against Him. Because that's why you and I experience the curse of this world. I'm not saying that everything that you go through is a direct result of a sin that you committed. I'm not. But I am telling you that every pain and sorrow you go through in this life is a direct result of sin, period. If it were not for sin there would be no suffering, there would be no curse, there would be no sorrow. And so we have to be able to get back to this place to where we understand that even though I may not feel like that I personally have sin to confess, I'm going to get down on my knees and I'm going to confess any sin I can think of. And if there are sins in my life, I'm going to repent from them and I'm going to trust God to forgive me for those while I pour out my heart to Him because of the pain that I'm experiencing in this life. And so he responds by fasting and praying in verse 4. And then the number three point that we see Nehemiah does comes from verse 5. He responds with faith in God's character. Look what he says in verse 5 here. He says, And I said... O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments. In other words, the first thing He does is as He prays, He prays in faith. He doesn't come to God and say, oh God, it's just hopeless and there is nothing that nobody can do and and God, I just need somebody to hear me right now. There is nothing I need from You. There's nothing You can do. You're not big enough to solve any of this. Um, it's, It's just a hopeless situation. We're done for and this is just it. No. He starts his prayer off by saying, God, first off, You are the God of heaven. You are the God of the universe. Now think about the context that that would mean for me and you today. Nehemiah don't have a lot of knowledge that we have today, but science tells us that the universe from the, just the observable universe, just what they can see, alright? They can't see no further because we don't have the technology for it yet. But just what we've been able to see, they say, is 13.8. Billion light years from one side to the other. Now let me put that into context for you. A light year is 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. If you could travel that fast. Now I don't know about you, but about the most I've been is 110, 115, something like that. But 186,000 miles every second. If you could travel that fast for an entire year, it would still take you 13.8 billion years to get from one side of the universe to the other. That's just what we can see today. Nehemiah is only able to look up in the heavens and see the moon and the stars and know that this thing is vast and beyond my understanding. And yet even still, his response is, O God of the heavens, great and awesome. In other words, Nehemiah comes to God in faith understanding, God, there's nothing too big for you. God, there is nothing too hard for you. And God, I'm coming to You weeping and mourning because I feel the pain. I'm experiencing the pain. But I'm coming to You in faith because I know who You are. And I know enough about You to know that You are great. And You are awesome. And then notice what He says next in verse 5. He says, and not only that, but You are the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with the people that belong to You. In other words, God, you are the God that keeps your promises. Now, why does that matter? Well, for Nehemiah, God had promised that He's going to deliver this remnant. God has promised that He's going to bring them back, that He's going to restore them. God has promised that they're going to be blessed. God has promised that they're going to dwell with Him. Now, for us today, I'm not telling you that you pray and just know that God's going to remove the pain. God never promised that He's going to take your pain away here in this world. God never promised that the way would not get weary. Matter of fact, He promised you just the opposite in this world. He said if you are going to follow Him, you must deny yourself and do what? Take up your cross cross and then what? Follow Follow Him. That's the promise you have in this world. Do you know what it means to take up a cross? It is heavy. It is hurtful. It is a device that ultimately leads you to death in this world. It is a torture device. It is the device of suffering. And ultimately He promised you that in this world there are going to be times that you're going to experience trouble, that you're going to experience pain. In this life, you're going to go through the fire. You're going to go through the flood. But you know what He promised you? When you do it. I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. When you go through the fire, I'll be there with you. When you go through the flood, I will be there with you. No matter what you go through in this life, I promise you, I will be there. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And that's the kind of faith that we pray in. God, right now I weep and I mourn. I fast and I pray. But I know who you are. And I believe that your promises are true. And I believe that you are with me. And I believe that you will work all things together for my good because I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. And I believe that even though this world is filled with trouble, you overcame the world. And I know that there is no darkness that I will endure that you have not already conquered, you have not already defeated, and I know that one day when this life is over, I won't experience none of this pain and none of this suffering anymore. And so right now my eyes are on you. And so this is the way that Nehemiah responds to his pain. He responds with faith in God's character. The next thing, he responds with persistent prayer, making his request known to God. Now I'm not telling you that just because God never promised that He would deliver you from the pain, does that mean that you can't pray for deliverance? Absolutely not. You can pray for whatever your heart... Matter of fact, God says, cast your cares on me because I care for you. God said, you have not. Why? Because you ask not. The Bible says, if you fathers being evil in your sin know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your perfect heavenly Father know how to give good things to you? And ultimately, we know he was talking about the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, the same concept applies. There's nothing that... Uh, you know, God has blessed me. I've got a pretty decent job. I'm not rich by no means, or I say not rich by United States standards, let me say that. But I'm in a place that pretty much, if, if my son wants something, for the most part, I could pretty well do it if I want to. And that's a nice place to be. Sometimes it's a terrible place because my boy's spoiled, all right? <laughs> I've not done a good job at that, all right? But I will tell you that I know how much I enjoy and love to give good gifts to my son. Man, there's nothing I love more than for my son to want something and for me to be able to go out and get it and give it to him. I love it. I mean, it is, it is something that brings such joy to me just to be able to bless my son Can I tell you that if that's the kind of heart I have, can you imagine the heart that God has? And what He wants to be able to do for you as long as it is good for you and as long as it brings you closer to Him. And so I say to you, Nehemiah here understands that I can pour my heart out to God and I can tell Him what I want. Look with me, if you would, at verse 6 and verse 11. In verse 6 here, He says, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. How often? Day and night. Day and night. Now one of the things that you need to understand this is he received this news around our November-December when you look at the month in verse 1 that it tells us. And then when you go over to chapter 2 and you see that God answers this prayer, it's probably some five months or so that passes. During this time, Nehemiah does not just quit praying. How many times do you and I get so caught up in our mourning and our weeping that eventually we just quit praying? We don't even bow down to Him anymore. We don't even cry our hearts out to Him anymore. For day and night, Nehemiah did not quit coming to God. You know why? Because the pain did not quit for day or night. See, I don't know how many of you have figured this out yet, but just because you come and bow your knees in an altar and you ask God to take your pain away from you, and you'll hear people say to you, you know what you need to do is get up and leave it. Get up and leave it. and You go back in faith and you just trust it. God's doing it. That is a lie. No. You don't quit praying until God tells you like He did Paul, hey, my grace is sufficient for you. And this is not something I'm going to do because of this and this and this. Nehemiah did not quit coming to God. He prayed day and he prayed night and he prayed day and he prayed night and he let his request be made known to God. Look down with me at verse 11 to see. It gives us a little hint of what he wanted. In verse 11 he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant when? Today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the king's cupbearer. What's he saying here? I'm fixing to go before the king, and I'm going to ask this king to help me help my people. That's what I want. That's my desire. Is God going to do it? I don't know. This city's been destroyed for 160 years, but one thing I do know, I know God loves His people. I know God is great and God is awesome and even though most people that come and ask this king for a favor get their head cut off, I'm praying that God will give me success, that I will be able to come in front of this king and today I will be able to get this king's approval. And day and night he goes before this king but he don't get success. Four to five months, he goes before this king. Day after day after day. And then he comes and he bows before the king of kings. Day after day after day. And says, Lord, grant me success. Hear my prayer. You are great and awesome. There is nothing too hard for you. You are the God of the heavens. Father, you are the God who keeps covenant. You keep your promises. I know what you've promised. God, you are the one that, that loves your people. You have steadfast love for them. And God, I'm trusting that one day, You're going to give me success in what my heart wants to do for you and for your people. And then when we get into chapter 2 next week, four to five months later, you know what happened? He got that success. The king just happened to look at him one day and said, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? You've never been sad in my presence. As a matter of fact, it was a terrible crime to be sad in the presence of the king. And Nehemiah comes in sad. And then he says to the king, well, why shouldn't my heart be sad? My father's home lies in ruins. The gates are burned with fire. The temple has been rebuilt, but no walls are around it. There's no protection. We're We're a taunt and a byword to the people and to all the peoples around us. And then the Bible says that not only did God grant him his prayer request to succeed, but God moved the king to give him all the supplies to go back and rebuild the wall. And we'll look at that next week too. But anyway, the point is this. He responds with persistent prayer and he makes his request known to God. And that's the same thing you should do in your pain. You come to God with weeping and mourning. You come to God with faith in who He is, with hope in your heart that nothing is too hard for Him. You come to God with a confession of your sins and you come to God with uh, making your request known to Him and you don't just do it one time and get up and you leave. You keep coming back. And you keep coming back. And you keep coming back until He gives you what you need or He gives you the strength to continue to endure it. Just like He did Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, I believe it is. He responds with persistent prayer, making His request on to God. Next it says, He responds with confession. Confession removes any and all hindrances, and you can read that in verses 6 through 9. I'm not going to read it again for you, but He confesses the, not only the sins of His na- nation, not only the sins of the people around Him, but He said, even me and my Father's house have sinned against you, God. In other words, is any one of us exempt from sin? Not at all. Not at all. And he confesses that to God. And then finally, in verse 10, he responds by remembering the power of God to bring them this far. Look what he says. Let's start with me in verse uh, verse 8 and 9. and We'll go through verse 10. This is my last point. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Is that not what happened? God kept His word, didn't He? Alright, so here Nehemiah is just acknowledging, God, you did. The reason why we're here is because you did exactly what you said you would do. All right, now, but he doesn't stop there. In verse 9 he says, But if you return to me, and you keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Guess what else God has done? He's done that too. You know how? The remnant is already back from all the parts of the world. He's called them back to Jerusalem. They've already built the temple. They've already been established in the law. But still, the city is all ruined and in brokenness and and just burned to the ground. And so here, Nehemiah acknowledges that God, you kept your promise to scatter them out and God, you kept your promise to bring them back. Now based on that, look what he says next in verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You hear what Nehemiah is saying here? God, you wouldn't have brought them back if you didn't intend to keep your promise. God, you wouldn't never have called me out of darkness if you didn't intend to bring me to the finish line. And that's the reason why the Apostle Paul said, I know that what God has started in you, God also will finish. In other words, I know God kept His promise to call you out of darkness. God kept His promise to save you through faith in Jesus Christ. And if God brought you this far, do you really believe that God is just going to let you, His people, sit out there and just be destroyed? Absolutely not. God is going to do whatever it takes to bring you to the finish line and He will finish what He started. And so Nehemiah simply reminds himself in the prayer that God kept His promises to send them away and He kept His promise to gather them back and He is going to keep His promise to bring them into completion to build this kingdom. They will dwell with Him. He will be their God. They will be His people. He is going to finish what He started. And I don't know about you, but that's something I need to hear every now and then. I need to hear that every now and then. In closing, I want to tell you about a a young lady. I say a young lady. She was born in 1925, she died in 2016. Her name was Helen Roosevelt. She was a missionary, most famously known for her work in the Congo. She had a doctorate in medicine from Cambridge University. She established training schools for nurses in the Congo. She uh, trained women to serve as nurse evangelists in the Congo. She ran medical clinics and established medical clinics in the Congo. She transformed one of those clinics into a hospital with a hundred beds serving mothers who were having children, serving lepers, and serving children who had gotten sick. That's what they primarily focused on. The problem happened in around 1964. Civil War broke out in the Congo. They took her and ten of her other Protestant evangelists captive. They beat them. Literally busted all their teeth out of their mouth. They hit them in the heads with the butts of rifles. They uh, they 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 beat them and tortured them. And then one night she tried to escape. They drug her back. They beat her again, almost to, a, to to death. And then they raped her. She went home after she after whatever happened. I don't know. I was listening to her testimony on the video last night. Somehow or another, she got out. She went home for about two years to recover. During this time, she questioned a lot of things. God, we were over there doing so much work for You. God, we we were accomplishing so much. God, so many people were being ministered to. God, You you were big enough to, to step in and stop this, and You didn't. And she struggled with that. Long story short, she finally came to a place where she said, You know what, God? If they did this to Your Son, why should I be surprised that they would do this to me? And at the end of the day, she said, God told her, these sufferings are really not yours. They're Jesus' sufferings that you're experiencing. Because at the end of the day, the world is still trying to crucify Jesus over and over again, and you belong to Him. And so she went back and she set up another hospital because they burned all those things to the ground. There was nothing left of her work. She comes back to the Congo about two years later. She sets up another medical clinic, turns it into a hospital of about 250 beds that minister to, to women and, to, and has a maternity ward and has a place for leprosy and has a place for children. And it's a great ministry. And one night she said they called her and, and they told her, they said, Miss Helen, you got to get over here quick. There's a woman in labor and um, we don't know if she's going to make it. And she got over there and they were praying for the woman. They were trying to help her. The woman had a two-year-old daughter. And then she's trying to have this baby. And long story short, she dies. Out of all their efforts, she dies. They're trying to save this little newborn. It's a premature newborn and so they're trying to keep this baby warm because normally they would put it in an incubator, but in the Congo they don't have incubators. They don't have electricity. And so they're doing everything they can to save this child and they take this last water bottle, hot water bottle they have, and they go to fill it up because they were going to get a box with cotton and all kinds of things to put it in and put the water bottle under it where it would help keep the baby warm and the bottle busts. It's the only one they have. So Ms. Helen says, I don't know what to do, but we've got to save this baby. And so she takes the little two-year-old daughter over to the orphanage to stay because the mother has died. She takes the baby and she gives it to one of the nurse women and she charges her to build a fire. And your job is to lay that baby between you and the fire. And your job is to keep that baby alive through the night. And then tomorrow we'll try to figure out how to continue helping save this child. She goes to the orphanage the next day and she says, "Um, Kids, I need y'all to pray. She said She I think the little girl's name was Ruth maybe. I can't remember for certain. But the little two-year-old, she said she's lost her mother. She said the baby is probably fixing to die if uh, God don't send a water bottle. And at the end of the day, I don't know what else we can do. And she said she was just hopeless. And she said all of a sudden a little ten-year-old girl in the orphanage just broke out boldly praying. said, God, we need you to send a, water bo- a hot water bottle. And God, we don't need it tomorrow. Tomorrow will be too late. God, we need a water bottle today. And Ms. Ru- Ms. Helen, she said that she was she didn't even say amen to the prayer because she thought that prayer was so bold. She said, how in the world can we demand of God that, that that we need a water bottle? And how can we expect God to give us a water bottle today? In other words, she didn't believe that God could do it. And she said that about an hour later, Somebody told her that she, and she had never received a package at this place where she was at. And they told her, they said, there's a package on your, front, on your front porch. And she goes to her house and she goes to her front porch. And she said that she had never received one before. So she wanted her kids to be involved in opening the first package from the state. She didn't even know what was in it. And she gets the kids and she goes and she brings them up there and they open the box up. And whenever she's digging down inside of it, she said, no way. There's, there's no way. And she pulls out a hot water bottle. And she said the little 10-year-old girl stepped up and said, Look again, look again. Oh, I forgot to tell you this part. In her prayer, she also said, and will you please send a baby doll so that the 2-year-old little sister can know that you still love her? And again, Ms. Ruth said that the prayer was just so bold that she couldn't even say amen. And when she pulled the water bottle out, the little 10-year-old girl stepped over there. She said, you've got to look again. You've got to look again. Because if God sent the water bottle, you know He sent the doll. <laughs> and this a true story. I-, I wanted to show the video today, but it's a little hard to hear the audio. So I didn't want to do that. But anyway, she reached her hand down in there. Sure enough, at the bottom of that box, there's a baby doll. And what's so amazing about this is it takes five months to get the package from the States to where she was. So five months before this ever happened, before they ever started praying, God already had a church in the States prepared to put a box together so that on the day that it needed to be there, to answer this little girl's prayer, it would be there. Now what am I trying to say to you? That's, yeah, that's a good thing to say. I'm not telling you that that's the way that God is always going to work with your prayers. But I am telling you that we need to be more like the 10-year-old than we are like Miss Helen. Miss Helen learned a lesson that day. If you have not, you ask not. And you know what? If you're bold enough to at least ask, And tell God the desire of your heart and tell God what's your need and you're bold enough to keep coming back to Him in your pain and you're bold enough to keep uh, proclaiming His faithfulness and who He is and how great and awesome He is and you're bold enough to confess your sins and to trust Him for His righteousness to cover you so that your prayers are not hindered. And if you're bold enough to continue to persistently pray making your requests known to God... You never know. God can send a water bottle quicker than you think He can. And so I pray this morning that if you don't take any other lesson from this in Nehemiah, you'd learn this. God loves His people. And God's a good Father. And God wants to give you the desires of your heart if it is indeed good for you. And God bids you to come to Him and cast your cares on Him. And God tells you to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming because it's in that that you're learning day after day to just depend on Him and trust Him through the pain. And I'll promise you, you may not get exactly what you're asking for. And then again, you may get exactly what you're asking for. But you will always get what you need. And you will always get what's best for you. How do we respond to our pain? We weep. We mourn. But we don't do it like those who have no hope. We respond in faith. And we respond in persistent prayer. And we respond proclaiming the greatness of God. And we respond in confession of our sins. And we respond by reminding Him, God, if You brought me this far, You didn't bring me out here to lead me in the wilderness to die. You brought me to bring me to the finish line.